Hello and welcome to Brain Food for General Counsel, where we take a monthly look at the biggest issues your organisation faces, helping you to navigate them with thoughts from some expert voices. My name's Matthew McGee and I'm a journalist here at Pinsent Masons. The UK is on the cusp of one of the most fundamental social, political and economic changes in decades, leaving the European Union. Technically, Brexit has already happened, but a transition period has kept everything more or less the same and it lapses at the end of 2020. Change when it comes will be profound in the UK and material in Europe. The effect will be more minor in the rest of the world, but many countries will find the UK suddenly at their door looking to negotiate separate trade deals and create direct political and economic relationships. A deal with Japan was announced recently, though it was more or less a lift and shift of the existing EU deal. Businesses have been preparing for years. The referendum vote was in 2016, after all. But they've been hamstrung by a frustrating lack of clarity about what a trade deal with the EU would look like, or whether there would be one at all. Recent months have brought that clarity, though not necessarily in the way that business wants it. Any deal is now likely to be so narrow in scope that the difference between it and no deal is smaller than ever. What does it all mean? We'll hear from former head of the UK Government Economic Service, Vicky Price. How did we get here? David Thornlow of Pinsent Masons, who advised the UK Government on some of its breaks at work this year, can help with that. And what should companies do to prepare now that the eve of Brexit is upon us? Brexit specialist Claire Francis of Pinsent Masons will give some useful pointers. And trade negotiator Anna Yerzewska will help us understand how trade agreements work and how companies can respond to that. And there's some good news. Brexit wasn't what business wanted and the version we're getting is different from that most often discussed in the referendum campaign. But Vicky and Claire have both found some grounds for optimism. Limited, speculative and conditional, but at the moment we'll take all the optimism we can find. We'll turn to Vicky first for a quick primer on the economics. When you live in a country and are exposed to what feels like an increasing degree of myth-making about what state the country's in, it's easy to lose perspective. So I asked Vicky, is the UK genuinely an important economic power in the world? And what effect might Brexit have on that standing in the medium term? The UK is a very significant player in the world economy. We are the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, We account for something like just over 3% of world GDP. Uh, We are members of um, all the major international bodies. We are members of the G7. We are members of the OECD. We play a big role in the G20. And if you look at our share of GDP in Europe, we're about 16% of the overall GDP. In reality, we did have quite a lot of power as part of a big block. Uh, Of course, a big block like the EU, which has quite a lot of uh, power in relation to ensuring that trade agreements were done in a certain way, negotiating with other countries, having a voice in the WTO, the World Trade Organization, the sort of thing that we will have now to recreate ourselves, you know, despite our economic power as an individual country, we'll have a lot less of a say in what happens in the world uh, arena as a result of being outside the EU. If we go for World Trade Organization rules, in other words, no deal, uh, then we could see GDP 
uh, fall by or being 9% lower than it is now uh, in, over the next 13 years. Most forecasters agree with that. If we have uh, something that is looking more like Norway, if we were able to ever move in that direction, then the hit is considerably less. Uh, and in between is what we're discussing now, which is an FTA, which is a free trade agreement. Uh, then that would mean that you're somewhere like possibly five to six percent lower. The problem with that is, of course, you lose that output um, over a period of time and you can't really recover it. And that's why so many people now, including uh, the LSE that has done some long school of economics, that has done some recent calculations and others, are uh, saying that, in fact, the, the long-term impact of Brexit is likely to be possibly at least sort of twice as large on the UK economy as the impact of COVID-19. That's the big picture. But what about the situation for businesses? All business has asked for from the very start of this phenomenon has been certainty. The good news is they now have it, even if the practicalities of that certainty might not be wholly welcome. But Brexit expert Claire Francis of Pinsent Masons says that whether there's a deal or not, businesses now have answers to most of their questions about what happens next. There is a real convergence between what, a, on the one hand, a deal might look like and, on the other hand, what a no-deal scenario would be. And that convergence has come about over time rather than being a really stark contrast we saw last year of, of that cliff-edge scenario because we know the deal is becoming thinner and, therefore, there will be some change even if there is a deal on, on the various elements. And that means for businesses, that convergence does give them some areas of more certainty where they can plan and, and prioritise their resources and their activities accordingly. One thing we're finding many clients look at and focus on is actually the lessons they have learned from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly in terms of their supply chains. Um, supply chains were, were massively impacted by COVID-19 and businesses have learned some really valuable lessons from that, which they've been able to take into their Brexit planning now in terms of whether they have uh, dual source suppliers or where those really critical pinch points in the supply chain are so that they can really focus and prioritise on those and, and make sure they're the goods that they have either stockpiled or have alternative sources for or mitigated their plans accordingly. Um, and that has certainly meant many businesses feel um, much more robust going into um, this uncertainty now because they have dealt with those issues in the coronavirus lens and therefore they can use that learning in their Brexit preparations and, and feel more confident about where the impact may be felt by their business. So the most affected companies remain those in a regulated sector, so financial services and life sciences being a really good example, and those that transfer goods across the border. Um, they have always been the most affected, the regulatory ones, because of the different way the regulatory regimes are going to work. But that does mean that those businesses in the regulated sectors um, are generally more prepared because they've been forced to prepare earlier and, and had a lot of guidance from their regulators in terms of what to do. Probably less so and where people have been waiting for more certainty is those businesses who trade goods across um, the border with the EU and, and the UK, vice versa, um, where there has been a real wait for certainty in terms of what that will look like. Um, and that's where they could see some really bumpy disruption in terms of delays and, and additional costs at the border. Trade law expert David Thornlow of Pinsent Masons agrees with Claire that the deal and no deal pictures now look quite similar. 
we are seeing this year more certainty than ever as the deal and no deal scenarios come closer together. It has become clear from all the briefings coming out from both sides that if there is a deal, it will be a, a slim deal. And that for many, if not most sectors in the UK, that bill may have little impact. The impacts which we are likely to see from day one um, in January 2021 do look now pretty similar, uh, whether it's deal or no deal. It's most likely to have a major impact around that question of zero tariffs and quotas. The biggest change that, that will affect all sectors of the UK economy will, will be around the UK border, because even if there is a deal on tariffs and quotas, the border is being erected and there will be customs formalities to be complied with. Um, and, and that will lead to a slowdown of, of movement and trade at the border. By the UK government's own calculations, there will be an extra 200 million customs declarations a year, which really is an eye-watering number to give you a flavour of that administrative burden that, uh, that will come from, from next year. In the longer term, the other sort of general thematic change is going to be around the UK services sector. Uh, some services affected more than others. There is every chance, particularly with something like the financial services sector, where the UK has, has such a strong portion of, of the market, that the EU will, from its perspective, quite possibly be looking at more protective measures. So it's really about service providers in the UK thinking about how can they get that foothold in the EU market? They are not; they are no longer going to have that right to do so just by virtue of, of being based in the UK. And they will need to think much more closely about how they really embed their operations in the EU in ways that comply with EU regulations if they really want to continue to benefit from accessing the EU market. We've been living with the reality of Brexit for four years, and yet it still has the capacity to surprise even alarm. This autumn, an almighty political row broke out between the devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland on one hand, and the UK government in Westminster on the other. It was about the Internal Market Bill, a piece of legislation designed to make sure the trading bloc within the UK survived. It could have some pretty hefty consequences for the whole country, as it risks undermining the powers of devolved nations. The bill takes the place of EU internal market legislation once it no longer applies and ensures that there is a frictionless market within the UK, explains trade law expert David Thornlow. It does that through uh, two principles, essentially. The first is mutual recognition. So if a good uh, can be lawfully sold in one part of the UK, then it can and should be sold uh, in other parts of the UK. And the second is non-discrimination. So that goods moving uh, from one part of the UK to another um, are not discriminated about in, in the regulatory systems that apply in different parts of the UK. We see uh, a Labour administration in Cardiff and an SNP administration in Edinburgh who are more inclined to pass legislative measures that might impose higher food standards, higher higher consumer protection, public health protection, environmental protection. And they have a real suspicion of the Conservative government in Westminster that it will be seeking to deregulate and lower standards uh, in its attempts to 
deregulate for business. If there are higher food standards, environmental protection standards, public health standards that are imposed in legislation in Wales or in Scotland, then they will be trumped if there, there are lower regulatory standards in England because goods that comply with those standards in England can be traded in Wales or Scotland and those those higher standards can cannot prevail. So there is there is some sense in those criticisms we're seeing from devolved administrations, but it is also dependent very much on the political context and what what at the moment are merely suspicions that they have of the deregulatory intentions of this UK government. I think there's no doubt that this this hardline approach being taken in the bill does risk um, long-term constitutional um, implications. In our in our 20-year history of devolution in the UK over the last 20 years, it's been characterised by devolving more powers out to different parts of the UK and very much taking a much more consensual approach. Um, and I think if, if the UK government is, is going to stick to its hard line retreating from that kind of approach, um, it, it does not bode well for, for the future constitutional status of the UK. Let's get to some of the practicalities. Brexit will change the way companies operate in some pretty major ways. How they construct goods and where they can sell them. Where they can offer services or advice and what other companies they can work with are all issues that suddenly become much more complicated on the 1st of January. A major focus is on supply chains, where companies are trying to find more local suppliers, or using more than one supplier for components, or just holding lots of stock themselves, all in search of resilience, says Claire Francis. So certainly people are looking at supply chains in a different light and a different context than they had before. The supply chain resilience piece uh, we're finding in our discussions with clients and also a study we've done recently with Warwick Manufacturing Group, that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. So dual sourcing isn't the magic answer. Um, Holding stock or or buffer inventory isn't the magic answer. And actually, it's a combination of those various different things that will bring you resilience in your supply chain. However, as with everything in life, that does come at a cost. And businesses are really challenging themselves to say, well, what is the acceptable cost to buy that supply chain resilience um, rather than it necessarily being a race to the bottom. And I think that's one thing that businesses should certainly look at in, in great detail. One of the opportunities as they go forward into 2021 and beyond is just how they adapt and manage their supply chain in different ways going forwards in order to really build that resilience. Um, and what is that acceptable cost? So companies are trying to prepare and change how they do business. But customs and international trade consultant Anna Yerzewska says that companies have just not had adequate opportunity to prepare enough for what's about to happen. Uh, For most part, businesses are not prepared. They're not ready. Even the businesses that have been trying to get ready uh, cannot be fully ready because of lack of information. So we are still waiting for crucial guidance, um, not only in terms of Northern Ireland, but also in terms of just um, our our normal border with the with the EU. We're still waiting for information. We're still waiting for applications for certain simplifications, uh, for a number of other things. So uh, no one can fully be ready because the information is just not available. In the UK, we're just generally not ready. First of all, the government isn't ready, and there are a couple of things here. The government hasn't issued all the guidance. 
uh, on the border operating model, uh, we don't have our IT systems in place. There will be issues with border procedures, issues with understanding what it means to be an importer exporter, because whenever we import something into a given country, there's also a liability that comes with that. Uh, a legal liability, and I don't think companies uh, understand that, and 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 the the communication from the government uh, hasn't really helped in that respect. Because trade was taken care of by the European Union, the UK is going to be new to the process of negotiating its own trade deals. Anna gives us a bit of an insight into how the UK will fare when it attempts to negotiate bespoke deals with economic giants such as the US without the power of 27 other countries behind it. These will be the first agreements where the UK will negotiate from scratch. And this will be interesting to see because it's a completely different story where you take an existing agreement and slightly amend it to make it more relevant for the UK and where you negotiate an agreement with a tough trading partner and a tough negotiator, such as, for example, the US. Um, on on uh, on issues that's important for them and from scratch. So I think that's going to make a massive difference in terms of what these agreements look like and we might find out that, that it's uh, more complicated than we originally thought. The reason that EU didn't manage to get a, a deal with the US and, and in the simplest terms possible, uh, that was because the EU, uh, sorry, the EU didn't want to compromise certain things. And if we, the UK, want to have a deal with the US, chances are we will be forced to compromise on certain aspects. And then we know that the UK general public, that the, the, the people in the UK do not want uh, to see a compromise when it comes to food standards. They do not want to see a compromise when it comes to NHS uh, and a number of other high-profile uh, topics. Uh, is going to be a challenge. How to, uh, how to, uh, the UK getting a deal with the US will, will be, um, will be dependent on, on how much the UK is willing and able to uh, bend to, to uh, American demands and requests. The trade negotiations with the EU have been particularly fractious and politicised. A trade deal should take years to negotiate, but the UK and the EU were trying to hammer one out in months against an increasingly toxic political backdrop. David Thornlow says the circumstances are unique. These have been trade negotiations like no other. If we if we remember the context and, and think back to the beginning of this year, I don't think any informed observer believed then a complex negotiation like this could be completed in anything less than two years. But the UK government insisted a deal had to be done in seven months. Um, and that's because the Johnson government's first priority is to ensure that the Brexit transition period does end at the end of this year, come what may. Um, there has been progress. You know, we've we've heard reports that both sides have agreed in principle on a number of issues that sort of are around the edges of, of a trade deal. But it is looking like a, a slim deal from everything we hear. There have been three major sticking points in the negotiations. The first is the so-called level playing field guarantees that the EU wants from the UK to ensure that the UK is not subsidising UK businesses in a way that distorts competition. Um, access to the UK fishing waters for the EU fishing fleet 
And thirdly, effective enforcement, which has, has become particularly important because I think it's fair to say that, that levels of trust from the EU on the UK uh, sticking to the terms of agreement are not particularly high right now. Um, and and what we've seen really o over the course of this year is the UK taking a really firm line in negotiations, no real compromises, particularly on those, those big issues. And... Uh, it's fair to say that there can't realistically be, be a deal and, and unless that does change in the final weeks. The process of a trade negotiation, of course, each side starts uh, with its red lines, with its opening position. And it's then about trying to find that middle ground of, of where things, things lie. I think what's been really unusual about this, uh, this negotiation between the UK and the, and the EU is is the UK has has been so hardline about it? The the Johnson government is is wise enough to know that if it wanted much more from the EU, it would need to give up much more, and particularly give up more um, control by the EU on how we would regulate elements of the UK economy. Most observers harbour some optimism that some kind of a deal can be done in the coming days. But David says that people may not be fully aware of just how unusual this negotiation has been and of the actual state of talks. What I've heard from contacts in the UK government since the summer is is a real pessimism on, on the prospects of, of a deal. Um, in the negotiating room, the UK has been just as unflinching in its position as it has been publicly. Um, and one of the reasons for that pessimism is just how far the negotiations have progressed. Typically, in a negotiation like this, we broadly expect there to be to see four stages. The first is the exploratory talks, where each is seeking to understand the positions of the other. That tends to be lots of very dry PowerPoint presentations and people dozing off in the corner of, of the meeting room while the other side talks uh, at length about what they want. And perhaps a few, a few questions and answers just to try and understand what the other side is looking for. So that was, that was those sort of first, first couple of months back in the spring. Then the second stage is about getting broad agreement in principle on the main issues and where talks have progressed in the summer. The third is then moving on into the second half of the negotiations where you move on to negotiating the real detail of hundreds of pages that we see in a, in a trade agreement. Typically, a trade agreement is going to run to three, four, five hundred pages and that will all need to be negotiated in detail to make sure it is doing exactly what each side wants and there will be a lot of haggling over the details, a lot of horse trading. And then the fourth stage is that final haggling in, in the dark room over the last few issues that remain outstanding. Now the challenge with these negotiations, there's a lot of reporting in the press that kind of assumes we're at, we're at that, fine, that last stage, we're, we're getting into that haggling over the last few issues, but but that's not right. We haven't actually moved past, um, as at mid-October, when both sides took stock, they hadn't moved past the second stage. They'd got stuck. It really means both sides are leaving themselves a huge um, amount of remaining work to do in the final weeks. Certainly what I would say, it would be a remarkable turnaround if if both sides did manage to achieve a deal when, when they had left so much to be done so late in the process. 
Trade is just not something most of us think about very much. It's a vital part of business activity, and the expansion of global trade and removal of tariffs and barriers over the past century have changed the political, social and economic shape of the world. Globalisation has been the result, an increase in economic activity and internationalisation of business and the lifting of billions of people out of poverty. Yet those of us in developed EU economies just have no experience of the ins and outs of trade, how power defines its flows, how regulations open or close markets, and how the day-to-day stuff of customs forms, queues and congested ports decides the economic fate of nations. Vicky Price and Anna Yerzewska explain the impact of new frictions in the UK's trade. The, the way it works, of course, is that uh, once you put frictions in your trade, which was until now frictionless, even if you don't actually have um, any extra tariffs on trade either way, then obviously you make uh, the, the life of businesses costlier. Um, and investment decisions will be affected by this. Uh, what it also does is it changes quite considerably your competitive um, position in relation to anyone else in in Europe. Um, what you find, therefore, is that markets become smaller. Uh, but I think the financial crisis is a very good comparison, uh, which gives us you know, a reason to worry, if you like, in terms of what the Brexit uh, by looking what happened with the, during the financial crisis and beyond, and then think that this is something sort of semi-similar, but actually it may have, according to forecasters, an even bigger long-term impact when you lose continuously because you're out of this enormous block. Then you just may never recover to the path that you had before. We've seen companies lose contract, EU contract. So that's already happening. Uh, that might happen uh, more. There's a number of issues that are different when you when you are a member of the EU versus when you're not a member in the EU. When you want to place a product on the EU market, you're no longer in the club. You no longer um, your rules are are no longer um, accepted and and um, treated as as equivalent by by the EU. You are outside and you need to comply with EU's external regulation and the way that EU treats uh, imports from third countries. UK companies are still hopeful that they will be able to maintain their market share in the EU. Uh, they're prepared to go uh, an extra mile to, to be able to do that. But I mean, if you are a, a, an EU client and you're looking for parts that are not necessarily perfectly unique, why would you, uh, from the 1st of January, go to the UK knowing that you will have to comply with customs procedures and import and export procedures? Why wouldn't you just get it from someone else in the EU? So I think that that's going to be a problem, and that's possibly um, they're just companies choosing the path of least resistance. There's a steep learning curve ahead then for UK companies which want to continue to reach international markets. But much of what we've heard about is way beyond our influence or control. So what can they do in immediate, practical terms to make the best of the situation? Claire Francis. We know that in the short term, there is still a bumpy road. Obviously, businesses are going to need to deal with Brexit on top of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic um, and the change and disruption that in itself brings. So really, businesses need to look to 2021 and beyond in terms of their planning. 
from a, a Brexit perspective, most businesses have, have already looked at their workforce planning. So, so that's good. And it's keeping on top of that and making sure the processes are in place to attract and retain the talent required in order to operate the business. Um, from a data perspective, if there is no adequacy decision um, at the end of the transition period, then businesses will need to make sure they've put in place the relevant data transfer agreements in order to deal with that. There's also an element around their contracts, just in terms of ensuring they remain legally compliant or, or doing what the business thought they did. So, for example, is the territory referencing something as simple as EU or EEA? And, and does that need to be updated to make sure that still includes the, the UK? Um, and then I think we've, we've touched on supply chain a lot and because that is an area so heavily affected by Brexit, it's an area of real focus for business. Um, and in that supply chain and the contracts within it, we have really moved and shifted in terms of the way our clients are responding to that from looking at a Brexit clause or something that um, gives a renegotiation right to overlaying exactly how the contract deals with the way the business is responding from an operational perspective. And let me give you an example of what I mean there. So operationally, some businesses who already do a lot of rest of world trade, for example, are thinking, well, we are good at dealing with customs clearances. We understand how it works. We know what to do from our West, rest of world trade. And we have the right resource um, in terms of capability and capacity to do that ourselves. And we'd rather take control of that um, arrangement and make sure it works and, and be confident about it than push that risk onto our suppliers. In that respect, they need to draft their contracts very differently to a business who is saying, I'm not confident, I want my suppliers and my third-party logistics provider to take on that risk. And therefore, the contracts really need to reflect very accurately the operational decisions that the business has taken. So that joined up approach between the operational teams and the in-house legal teams is really critical going forward from a legal perspective. What we find the vast majority of businesses are doing is to prepare for a no deal scenario. Um, and then if there is this slim deal, obviously they can track back from that and that puts them in the best possible position. It's being able to plan and prioritise accordingly. So um, certainly we've helped clients map where what would I be doing if I was preparing for a no deal and where is that activity exactly the same on based on what we now think the, the slim deal will look like and therefore that is something they can be doing now and would need to do in either scenario um, so it gives them that certainty that they're investing their time and energy in the right place that will have a, a good impact on their business going forward. The economic picture is going to change quite dramatically particularly for the UK but also for parts of the EU as well. Nothing can alter that fact now, and the change will come at a time when the world is still in the grip of a global pandemic with profound economic consequences. And this is where we get to one of the small glimmers of hope in what's otherwise an anxious time. Vicky Price says that some of the actions taken by governments to combat the impact of coronavirus could also help the UK survive Brexit. These are options that were always there, she says, but have only just now been made palatable because with COVID-19, there has been no other option. What we found with the coronavirus crisis is that quite a lot of those constraints in Europe and also here um, you know, have now been... Um, sort of thrown out of the window, if you like, in the sense that there is a rethink of what support needs to come to particular countries when they're hit by a crisis. Uh, we have borrowed extensively. 
already. Uh, Europe is borrowing very significantly. So I think what we learned is that there can be government intervention to ease the pain. What it means is that there could be some active policy to reverse some of the negative trends that we might see because of Brexit, a lot more innovative policies, a lot more investment perhaps in areas that might lead to further growth in the future. But most importantly, on the competitiveness side, you do need to spend a lot of money on innovation, new technologies. Everyone talks about green, of course. Um, so really much more involvement from, from government in these areas. And I think what we've also learned from the coronavirus crisis, and we're probably going to be learning it also in relation to Brexit, is that uh, we're now in a situation where in most countries that you look at, the ones that have successfully survived the previous crisis and the ones that are now doing reasonably well in the current crisis is that the state is getting considerably more involved. And another little sliver of optimism comes from Claire, who's worked with companies for more than four years to help them prepare for the next few weeks. It's been a long, uncertain journey marked by frustration and confusion. But underneath all that has been real change, some of it very promising indeed. Often we hear that they, the business will say, we are doing this, but actually this has been the catalyst for us making a change we probably should have made before or we'd already been considering in some way. Um, so Brexit is part of that decision-making process, but rarely the only decision-making factor there. We are in a world where there is no new normal in many ways. Um, there is always change and the businesses that can deal with that change and be agile in the way they deal with it are the ones that are, are really going to survive and thrive. Um, if we get through the next five years without some other significant disruption, then in my view, that's probably been a lucky break. Um, so for businesses, it is really focusing on how you deal with adversity uh, and, and, and be agile and resilient in the way you address that so that you can um, survive anything that might be thrown at you. Thanks for joining us for the latest Brain Food for General Council podcast. Remember, you can keep up to date with hour-by-hour coverage of business law news by the Outlaw Reporting Team at vincentmasons.com. Don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, goodbye. Brain Food for General Counsel was produced and presented by Matthew McGee for Pinsent Masons, the purpose-led international professional services firm with law at its core.